on location. Uh, we are sat currently on a very beautiful golf course, stunning greens. Lots of people occasionally sort of teeing off. I think that's how you describe it. I can see someone putting at the moment, which is very interesting indeed. Uh, nothing like being on location, and there is a reason for it. We are live here from Al Zora City as we continue on our tour of the Emirates in the warm-up to UAE National Day next week. So we're here in Ajman, uh, only a short 45-minute hop up from Dubai. And for those of you who don't know about it, 60% of it is dedicated to the Al Zora Natural Reserve. Uh, basically designed to protect the natural environment. And my goodness me, it is a spectacular natural environment up here. Stunning mangroves. And we all know how important mangroves are to the environment. And if you forget, don't worry, we're going to do an interview about it just after 10.20. And in fact, making concessions to protect the environment is one of our top stories today because we are now one week exactly before the start of that COP28 climate change conference, which I think I've been flagging now for about a year and a half. So is it quite extraordinary that the time has come round and it is only seven days away? And ahead of that, UAE residents are being encouraged to take a pledge for the planet. Now, it is a global initiative organised by Expo City Dubai. The general gist is that they want to encourage everyone to take meaningful steps and find solutions in everyday choices, uh, from the foods we eat to the way we reuse and recycle. But there's lots more details that we need to find out. So I'm joined now by Lana Abdelhamid. She is from Expo City Dubai, and she is here to tell us all about that pledge for people and planet. Lana, good to have you join us on the radio. Thank you very much indeed. Tell me a bit about how this pledge works. Well, hello and good morning and thank you for having me. And absolutely, I'm very excited to be here and to just talk to everybody about what the purpose of this pledge is. So what we here at Expo City Dubai believe very strongly is yes, governments, international organizations, big business have a big role to play and they are being very proactive in our collective effort towards climate action. We as individuals and everyday people have such a fundamental role to play. Our vision really is to continue on the Expo 2020 legacy of connecting minds and creating the future. We want to move people and we're seeking to really ingrain this movement from awareness to agency to action. It requires an all of society effort. You know, everyone genuinely has a role to play. And what we're doing through the Pledge for People and Planet is providing a platform that enables people to do it. It's an open and inclusive campaign that's looking to bridge the gap of some people are so conscious and they're very aware and they're really, really keen to know what they can do. But it's now the next step of, well, what next? How do I do it? What, what kind of action and life choices can I make to contribute to our collective climate action effort? So what this climate action platform does is it provides meaningful steps and solutions. It highlights approximately, you know, more than 10 steps that people can do to start to join this global movement that seeks to really catalyze what we do. It, it really is, it, it's a perfect embodiment of the power of we, which is our ethos here at Expo City Dubai. It, it takes everybody to work towards the same direction and really by harnessing that power of individual, collective individual action, we're confident that we're, we're able to create positive, tangible impact for the benefit of our people and our planet. So but I wanted is to add a so this is very um, this is very encouraging because I think the problem with the magnitude of the problem is that no one can really figure out 
what they can do. And I think a lot of people feel this sense of inertia because it is just such an intractable problem that you don't feel that you can do anything about it. But what type of pledges can people make? What Can you give me some examples of the types of behaviour that actually make a difference? Absolutely. So there's different types of steps that highlight just how simple the actions you could do. What we find based on the research that we did to put this pledge together was a lot of people tend to rely or tend to um, look at, you know, the three R's we all learned, reuse, recycle, or reduce consumption. But there's so much more that people can do. For example, one of the most impactful ways that people can actively be part of collective climate action movement is to use the power of their own individual voice. One of the first steps that we highlight in this pledge program is to ask people to invite 10 of their friends to join a climate group. And that could be on Facebook, that can be on WhatsApp, that could be something as simple as listening into a podcast. And then you build on from there. So it's really about using your individual voice. Other types of actions that are very that are laid out very, very nicely, very simply include cutting your food waste, um, speaking more of, you know, coming up with ideas that could be implemented at your work or at your school, getting around greener. So using the metro or carpooling, just these tiny, tiny little genuine lifestyle changes that can have such a cumulative catalyst effect to what we are able to achieve. And what's really interesting as well about this platform is it highlights as you start to, to pledge or start to commit to these small steps, it shows you the amount of carbon emissions you've reduced or you've saved by taking these steps. So it's addressing that, that very, very fundamental point that you've mentioned about inertia, people just understanding that every little action counts. And this is how it actually, how much it accounts for. And I think that's fundamental for people to understand the genuine power of you and the power of we. I think it'll be really encouraging for people to see that those numbers sort of accumulate. Who are you hoping will make this pledge? I mean, obviously UAE residents, but I understand it is a global uh, program or a global strategy. It really is. It really is a global pledge and it's a global movement. It's a global inclusive campaign. You know, this is something that we are from the people of the UAE, we are inviting the world to take a part of. And this is something that we hope will continue to live on as something that we that we work towards is just a new way of living and a new way of appreciating our planet and making it a better and healthier place for the people we care about. Lana, it's been a great pleasure to have you join us on the agenda. Thank you very much indeed. I hope lots of people sign up to that pledge for people and planet. How many people have you uh, have you had click on it so far? Because I bet that those numbers start to ramp up over the next few days. I, they are, and I'm, I'm not. I don't have the numbers yet because it's always. Don't worry, it's only just started. <laughs> You've only just announced it. That's completely reasonable. Lana Abdulhamid there uh, from Expo City Dubai uh, from the Pledge for Planet and People. Do check it out online uh, and see whether you can make the pledge. See if you can make the difference. This is the agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai I 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda, coming to you live from Ajman today. We are on our tour of the Emirates in the warm-up to UAE National Day next week. We're specifically today in Al-Zora City, having the time of our lives on this beautiful Al-Zora golf course. I'm looking out, there's about, I don't know if it's a, yeah, I think it's the driving range. I'm looking out on about three people just practicing their swing right now. It is a glorious day up here in Al-Zora. And um, for those of you who don't know, this Al-Zora city, this specific area, which is only about 40, uh, 25 minutes from DXB airport, 
60% of it is dedicated to the Alzora Natural Reserve, which, as you can imagine, is designed to protect the natural environment. And it does like a sort of proper coastal retreat here as a consequence. Um, it's been a quite a clever decision, and obviously it means that the feel, the feel of the place is a bit more luxurious. You know, there's a sense of eco-considerations being kept front and centre. And uh, we wanted to find out a bit more about the sort of thinking behind that. So joining me now is tourism expert Katija Turki, who is actually from Ajman's Tourism and Development Department, and has joined us right out here on location. Katija, really lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much fun to have you here. Thank you for making the drive all the way to Atman and as you rightly stated we're not that far away from Dubai. Absolutely not no I just stuck my car. A lot of car. people do not know that. But yeah, yeah it's much closer than yeah. you think and uh, and I have to say my morning drive against the traffic was brilliant <laughs> so not a problem at all. Yeah. Looking out now over this stunning golf course and I can see the mangroves off in the distance. Stunning, beautiful, preserved. How key a role do they play in attracting tourists here to Ajman? Well, the mangrove have played um, a major role um, in the history of UAE and before the uh, inception of uh, United Arab Emirates. It has, it's part of the culture, it's part of the lifestyle of the Emiratis and Ajmanis who live in the area. It used to be a source of uh, uh, income, a source of energy when there was no electricity uh, in the area until the government smartly realized the importance of the mangrove and they've banned the cutting of the mangroves in the early 70s. And this area has flourished since then, and that's what—that's the beauty of our government and their visionary uh, and our visionary leaders, who pick up things that are related to the environment. And we've uh, always have been um, environmentally driven, but when it comes to tourism and the eco uh, tourism specifically, the mangrove has played a major role in educating uh, the tourists and the visitors and us who live in uh, who live. Uh, around this area of the importance of these mangroves and the um, advantage of protecting the mangroves and talking about the mangroves because as you all know, um, UAE used to be um, um, uh, a fishing village in the past. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, fishing villages, uh, city-states, which uh, are the first source of income and uh, well-being was fishing. And are, when where you find the mangrove, you find rich uh, reserves and you find uh, rich uh, um, life, uh, I mean, water life and uh, species that live around it. Um, the mangrove hosts more than 200 species and you have uh, living and residents and visiting uh, birds that come and migrate um, throughout the year over here uh, and I said um, where you find the mangrove you find a uh, rich fish area and it used to be uh, the place for people to come and fish and now it's a place where you come and you uh, connect with nature canoe I canoed exactly. around the mangroves I came up yes. to visit one of the hotels up here exactly. and I took a really lovely canoe around the area and there was a lot of bird life as yes. well are there any bigger mammals hanging out in the mangroves or is it mainly the sort of fish and bird life it, um, you have uh, crabs as well oh yes sea crabs that live in this area um, and us and us <laughs> well exactly and yeah. I think we are the source of uh, protecting this environment and all these beautiful species that uh, species that uh, live around this area. Uh, we encourage people to come and use the kayaking, which you have done uh, recently. But what we encourage people to do as well is to take part in planting the mangroves after they finish their journey. Because 
it feels more authentic and mm. it feels more connected when you leave a mark in this area and you you tell your um, kids that you've played a role in expanding this area, which is important. Absolutely. Now, uh, we have this sort of sense of this balance, the balance that you're right. having to judge. It's very difficult because obviously, you know, the people of Ajman want their city, want their environment to be developed so sure. that it provides jobs and opportunities. But, you know, you also you want to protect the natural environment that's attracting visitors here in the first place. How are you juggling that balance? So um, that's very important. Um, in Alzora uh, City, uh, it's a combination of a residential, uh, a commercial and a lifestyle. And with that, we have the mangrove reserves over here to uh, protect our environment. And we're using uh, our methods of educating all of our visitors. And we're going out to schools, telling them about the importance of uh, of protecting these uh, mangroves and you will notice that the quality of air here in the golf course is much better than anywhere else. It's uh, true. It's glorious. I mean, I feel like I'm probably out in the countryside. Yes. I understand suddenly why people like golf. <laughs> <laughs> and next to it, just behind you, you can see El Zoya, which is our wellness uh, uh, resort over here. And they've chose this location specifically for the quality um, of air in this area and they're surrounded by the mangroves and the um, um, and the birds and the golfers come all the way over here and plus we have um, a cycling uh, trail that has been introduced it's a 20 kilometers around the area and then with the commercial and with the residential it plays a major role in bringing people from um, across the emirates to come all the way to the mangrove if i give you a statistic um, since 2015, we had around 400,000 uh, mangroves in the area. Now, recently, we have more than 500,000 trees planted, which is an 8% increase of our reduction of the carbon prints. Fantastic. And is that set to increase? Because the UAE has announced, yes. in fact, they announced it at COP26, I think it was, a huge mangrove planting program. Yes. And so you're seeing, are you expecting the, the sort of the, the, that pledge to be uh, carried out here? That you're it's carried out throughout the UAE and yeah. we are part of that uh, pledge and we are very committed to increasing the number of mangroves. In fact, um, our quest of adventure, our partners over here who does all the kayaking, they are nurturing uh, baby mangroves because there's a scarcity of mangroves that a lot of people do not know. And we want more mangroves to be, so the people are able, and we, we as a country we are able to uh, commit to the pledge that we pledge. So we're nurturing these baby mangroves that will cater to the whole of UAE as well. Ashman, the home of baby mangroves. <laughs> My goodness me, that's such a sweet thing to think about. Uh, thank you so much, Khatija. It's been a great pleasure to have you joining us here on our glorious outside broadcast here on our Zara Golf Course. Uh, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you for coming over and for this beautiful initiative. We appreciate you. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, Khatija Turki there from Ashman's Tourism and Development Department joining me right here in Alzora City. We are on the golf course. It's part of our tour of the Emirates in the warm-up to UAE National Day and we're all having an absolutely brilliant time.
Welcome back to the programme. Listening here to the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Georgia Tolley here, broadcasting live from Ajman today. I am currently sitting, literally sitting, on the beautifully manicured lawn of the Al Zora Golf Club. We are in Al Zora City as we continue our tour of the Emirates in the warm-up to UAE National Day next week. But we're also keeping a close eye on, of course, all the international local news headlines. And we couldn't help but notice this intriguing story um, about fine water. And I use the word fine in the context of, you know, like fine dining, as in expensive. Um, Because people are now selling water costing as much as $100 a bottle. In fact, several hundred dollars a bottle. And it is growing in popularity around the world. Yes, you heard that right. I mean, uh, quite dazzling how extraordinary and how expensive it could be. Uh, We are talking about water drawn from places like volcanic rock in Hawaii. You can almost imagine the marketing campaign. Or melting glaciers in Norway. Or, get this, droplets of morning mist in Tasmania. I mean... (laughs) It's just, it's genuinely bonkers. Um, uh, But we wanted to find out more about it. So earlier, producer Jennifer Crichton caught up with water connoisseur Dr. Michael Masher. Now, he is the co-founder of the Fine Water Society. And he explained a little bit more about what goes on at the Fine Water Society. The Fine Water Society is a group of small premium bottled water producers that got together to really elevate water and give value to water. Now, this is something that we're seeing a bit of a trend to at the moment with restaurants signing up to have water menus with tasting notes. What is it that would classify a water to sit in that fine water category that would warrant that sort of treatment? So first of all, I'm really happy you see the same trend because I'm working for 20 years now on getting this trend established. And it's good to see feedback from all around the world that it's actually working. So your question, what is a fine water? So the most important aspect of what we're doing is when we say we bring value to water, we value water as a natural product, a product that has terroir because it comes from a particular place and it expresses that place and that can hold experiences and give wellness. And I don't know if you're familiar, but in many, many places, when you go to a supermarket and you buy water, probably half of the water you see in a supermarket shelf is processed water. And in my opinion, it makes no sense to put to process water, put it in a plastic bottle, and then consumer carry this plastic bottle home. It would be much better if people opened a tap. So when we talk about fine water, it's really water from as a natural product that can give you experiences and it's not just for hydration. So presumably when you're talking about water in that context, it would need to be bottled at or fairly close to source in order to remain unprocessed. Is that correct? And and if so, where do these fine waters mostly come from? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So as a, as a premium water, as, a, as I call it, as a fine water, you want to be bottled at the source. You want to be gentle bottled, meaning as little as disturbance as possible and When the consumer opens the bottle at home or in the restaurant, the water should taste the same way it tasted the source. So the water needs to be unprocessed, unfiltered, untouched, so to speak. And it should allow the consumer to make an emotional connection from 
the opening the bottle in the restaurant to the source. So there should be this emotional connection connecting the person from drinking the water to the source. And where does good water come from? It's remote places. You know, you don't want to drill a hole in the middle of the city where you have lots of pollution and extract the water there. You want to go to remote areas. You want to go to mountain areas. You want to go to areas where there's no industrial pollution. Those are the places where fine waters come from. So what is the sort of environmental impact then of the fine water industry if we're talking about bottling water and potentially flying it all over the globe? Yeah, so it's a really good question and I think a a very timely question. I don't think there's such a thing as a, a bottled water industry. It has many different layers. It's stratified. You have the, the super large producers that go into a place and extract lots of water and sell it to you in, in plastic bottles. But those are not the people that are part of the Fine Water Society. The Fine Water Society is a group of small producers. And those producers really work in a very sustainable way, working with nature in protecting, number one, the environment. We're seeing increasingly in the world right now the importance of access to clean water and the fact that not everybody has it. What do you say to those who think that this is a sort of elitist view of something that should be a a basic right for for all people? No, you're absolutely right. But we want to give value to water. And you see it's already working because we are talking about the issue. So I think that's the really most important aspect that we talk about water, give value to water. And when we do that, then we can address all the other issues you just mentioned. And yes, it's a privilege to open your tap water. And even here in the US where I live, there are 4 million people which do not have access to clean drinking water. But the more we value water, the more attention we pay to water, the better we can address those issues. And do you think that an industry like the fine water industry can help people do that? Or do you think it is, as as some critics have said, a sort of case of the emperor's new clothes? No, I don't think this is the case. I think it, it really helps you appreciate water more. When you move water away from the hydration to an experience part, you notice that water tastes different. Water has tastes. Water is not just water. And the very second you do that, you can also start now matching water with food. In the Fine Water Academy, where we train water sommeliers, we have trained a water sommelier in Dubai now. So it, it, it's happening. It just took a little bit longer than we all anticipated, but it's happening. The mind boggles. Dr. Michael Masher there, co-founder of the Fine Water Society. He is indeed a water connoisseur in conversation with the producer Jennifer Crichton. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hey there, welcome back to The Agenda. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Georgia Tolley. I'm here until one o'clock. And when I say here, uh, we are on location right now. We are in Ajman. It's all part of our warm-up to the UAE National Day next week. We're touring the Emirates. Not just us, but the whole of the Arabian radio network. So if you hear a bit of noise in the background, that's probably one of my sister stations. Uh, but we're right here at the Al Zora Golf Club in Al Zora City. Uh, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, the organisers or the 
the important people that be have decided to keep 60% of it dedicated to the Alzora Nature Reserve, designed, as you can imagine, to protect the natural environment. And there's lots of mangroves out here. It really is a lovely place for an extended staycation. But of course, you won't be able to take that extended staycation next weekend because... Contrary to previous expectations, National Day weekend will not be an extended break. Instead, the government has announced that both Saturday and Sunday will be classified as paid holidays. Now, that is at least in the private sector. Quite quite an interesting decision, quite a surprising decision. I know quite a lot of people who presumed that we'd have Friday off and who had booked uh, long weekends away. Um, they're now going to probably have to take that as holiday because I don't think you can cancel this late in the day. Um, and we were also intrigued to know what impact that was likely to have on uh, the hotel and staycation travel industry here in the UAE. Joined now on the line by Tamer Khan, who can give us a few insights in this because he is head of research in the Middle East for CBRE. Tamer, thank you so much for joining me on the agenda on Microsoft Teams. Tell me, was this an unexpected decision or was it just me that's got all confused? I um, I, I think we, we certainly uh, are used to having a, a long weekend. Uh, so I think there is uh, some confusion uh, potentially around that, but maybe not uh, wholly unexpected given the importance of COP uh, to, to the UAE and of course to Dubai. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, COP starts exactly seven days today. It would have felt a bit odd for us to have that Thursday and potentially also that Friday off. It would have been tricky to, you know, to manage the situation. And of course, hotels must be really booked up at the moment because of COP28. Do you think that to a certain extent, um, people weren't going to be able to go away anyway because all of the hotels have already been booked a year ago? Uh, potentially. And I mean, look, the, the market is very strong. I think maybe people would not have done what they would usually have done uh, in, in this period. If you look at how market performance has been so far in the year to September, uh, the UAE is hitting uh, around 75 percent occupancy. And that's uh, if you compare to 2019 levels, that's up by around 3.6 percent. We already have a very, very strong uh, you know, performance uh, um, happening within the market market at this moment in time and that's across uh, various different uh, locations within within the Emirates. Just wondering about how uh, the cancellation of this long weekend or, or the long weekend that never was, it wasn't cancelled, but uh, the fact that we don't have Friday off, do you think hotels and the staycation travel industry here is going to suffer from that decision or do you think realistically everything is just so buoyant it doesn't matter at the moment? Indeed, uh, I, I think the market is very buoyant at the moment. Um, so right now in the year to date of September, we're about 75% occupied, which is up by around 3.6% compared to 2019 numbers. The hotel rates are also up very significantly. Our average hotel rates uh, so far for the, for the year are around 585 dirhams. So we're up from around 482 dirhams. So the market is incredibly buoyant. But, you know, we, we won't have the national holiday that we're maybe used to, but given COP, given the demand that we've seen from the likes of Dubai Air Show and extended visitation, uh, we, we already know that... Um, the forward bookings for the COP period, normally at this time of year, we're around 30% forward uh, bookings, uh, you know, when we looked at the data from, uh, when SCR looked at the data from the 30th of October, we're now 44% uh, occupied already prior to the event. So I think it'll still be a very strong period. 
And we, I think that there might be some, uh, you know, uh, uh, what would have been induced demand in the likes of uh, uh, the, the other Emirates where you are in the likes of Ajman may have seen stronger visitation uh, if we did have a longer period. But even that market is doing incredibly well. So I think compared to where we have been historically, we'll still be up. Uh, across the board. Well, that is good news, certainly for the market here. How about uh, people who might have already booked holidays? I mean, what's the reality for them? I suppose they'll they'll have to to scupper them slightly. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's always a risk with uh, with holidays and announcements. I'm sure, uh, uh, you know, uh, there will be some level of understanding from uh, from hotels uh, at this point. But uh, as you said, I think some people may have to take a, a portion of their annual leave. Absolutely. And then looking ahead, of course, uh, in Abu Dhabi, we've got the F1 this weekend, plenty of, then there's a golf event as well, plenty of concerts, plenty of announcements about uh, fun things to get up to here in the Emirates. Is the outlook good over the next six months, despite the fact that around the world, people are supposed to be going into some sort of slowdown or recession? You'd think that there would be fewer people coming here to spend money. That is certainly true there, you know, the, the global headwinds and particularly sort of a very strong dollar, you would think that, uh, that there might be, uh, you know, at least some softening within the market, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. As you said, the amount of events that we have coming up with the likes of F1, we're going into high season and we've got occupancy rates uh, at around 75%. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got Abu Dhabi Finance Week as well and into sort of the, the uh, into early next year, I think the reality is we're going to you know, continue to have pretty strong visitation uh, within the UAE uh, until the, the start of the summer period. Is that despite the current geopolitical situations we have in the region? Um, th- that is. We, we've been keeping an eye on it. We've been looking at the number of flights uh, which have been scheduled in sort of some of the key uh, hub airports, uh, both uh, locally within the UAE, but also in the region as well. And uh, frankly, we haven't seen any form of a, uh, you know, a downturn in, in flight schedules uh, and any cancellations uh, with regards to that. That's very interesting indeed. Taymor, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on the radio. Really appreciate your time. We got two bites of the Taymor Khan cherry there, head of research in the Middle East for CBRE. Thank you very much indeed for your time here on the agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. Speaking about lots of things going on in the uh, Emirates at the moment. Of course, we're on the build up to UAE National Day next week, broadcasting to you live today from Ajman, specifically from Al Zora City. But this weekend, everyone's eyes are going to be on Abu Dhabi for the Formula One Grand Prix. In fact, the event kicks off today. Tens of thousands of fans making plans to attend the season finale. Sunday's race itself expected to grow a global television audience of more than 100 million. And hundreds of people, all the numbers, have been beavering away down at the Yaz Marina circuit to prepare for what really is one of the preeminent events on the UAE's sporting calendar. Joining me now to talk through those plans is Michael Golding. He's executive director of marketing and comms at Athara. They are the company which is running the Grand Prix out here. Michael, thank you for joining me on Teams. Tell me, how long do you prepare for this weekend's event? Hey, good morning, Georgia. Good to speak to you. Um, planning uh, start, it's actually a 14-month process. Um, and we started planning back in September of last last year for this year's event. So as we've seen, the uh, the growth of Formula One 
uh, as, as an event, not just for the motorsports fans, but for those who have been watching Netflix, Drive to Survive, um, those who are interested in, in uh, kind of much more of that um, entertainment experience that we offer in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix has meant we've had to bring all of our planning a long way forward. So yeah, it's a 14-month 14 14-month 14 cycle, which is, uh, which is amazing. Lots of hard work, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. What's on offer other than just fast cars? Although I have to say my enthusiasm for fast cars has increased a lot thanks to the documentary you just mentioned. I've really got into the, the politics behind the scenes. Yeah, and that's, that's an important part of the weekend. And um, look, ultimately, it's about the fans, right? So there's the motorsport is, is obviously crucial, but um, giving the, the, the fans an amazing experience is, is really important. Um, we have a huge international um, fan base that come in. So last year we had just over 70% of those um, people who came along to the race weekend um, came from international markets. So the UK, uh, Germany, we've got the, uh, the Dutchies coming in from the Netherlands, um, uh, as well as from the States and other parts of the world as well. So uh, that international catering to that international travel is really important. It's a bit of winter, winter sun, a bit of respite from the European winter. Um, and a lot of people spend uh, a lot of money and really look forward to this weekend. So it's important we deliver to them not only the after-race concerts in the evening, a uh, really important part of, of that, um, of the program, the Aslam after-race concerts, which were, were presented this year by, by Ian, um, where we've got Foo Fighters playing on Sunday night, Shania Twain on Saturday, Chris Brown on Friday, Tiesto and Ava Max tonight. So a really interesting, diverse set of, uh, set of acts to speak to all of our different audience groups who uh, who come along to the event. And uh, I mean, the whole weekend is is jam-packed. The whole of Yas Island is is um, activated. The whole of Abu Dhabi takes on a completely different energy across race weekends. And uh, this year, for example, the, the ticket, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix ticket, allows you access to the theme parks and the Louvre and the Castle Watin downtown in Abu Dhabi. So we're really trying to make the ticket into something that kind of unlocks somebody's holiday and to get people to stay here as long as possible, explore Abu Dhabi, explore the Emirates, um, uh, come through Dubai, visit Dubai as well. Uh, it's very, very much a, a UAE story. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, on the ground, just loads and loads of stuff to do for everybody. Well, that does sound... Well, that does sound very palatable indeed. Uh, I'm, I, I often get to head down for the Grand Prix, and I have to say it is a brilliant weekend. Exhausting, but for all the right mm-hmm. reasons. Um, there is, uh, obviously, there's another sort of quite big event happening in the UAE in the coming weeks. In fact, we are one week away exactly from COP28. And I know that that has given you guys um, maybe extra momentum, extra impetus to focus on the sustainability of the event as well. Yeah, and look, uh, uh, events um, uh, by their very nature bring in uh, lots of people into one place um, and we're looking to give a great fan experience whilst trying to balance that with our with our sustainability goals. Formula One um, has got its very clear targets in terms of what it's trying to achieve. Uh, we also have our uh, net zero targets that we're looking to achieve for 2030. Uh, but this year we've had a completely new lighting system installed, LED lighting system, which has reduced all of our uh, carbon emissions by up to 30%. Uh, we've got lots of our power comes from uh, solar panels, uh, which we bring in and we've installed a, new num- a number of solar panels at the circuit 
this year to absorb as much of that energy requirement as possible. Um, and on the ground, uh, there's a, a, a ton of different things around recycling of any of the plastics. Um, our uniforms are recycled in a different way. So the plastics collect on the ground are recycled into uniforms and all kinds of different things. And um, it's a really important part of, and we started this actually quite a few years ago. So it's great to have the momentum around the year of sustainability and, and COP28 as well uh, this year round. It's, it's, it's crucial to everyone. I got about 20 seconds left with you. Are you sold out or can I still get tickets? If you sneak onto a website, uh, you'll be able to find some more tickets, hospitality especially, uh, going great guns. We've got some awesome hospitality brands that we've partnered with this year, um, which you'll have a look on the website, but likes of Nobu and Hakkasan, Silavi, all of those restaurants pop up experiences here at the, uh, their Grand Prix. So last chance, demand has gone through the roof in the last 24 hours. So uh, if you want to come, be quick. <laughs> Just like the cars. Michael Golding, exactly. Executive Director of Marketing and Comms at Ethara, who are running the Grand Prix out here in Abu Dhabi. Of course, it is your Abu Dhabi Grand Prix weekend. Uh, the cars take to the tracks for the first time today. It's like they call it testing or something like that, do they? Benji, what do they call it the first days when they're going round in circles and qualifying. qualifying? Qualifying. That's what it's called. Qualifying. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Listening live, well, you are listening live. We are also live from Ashman. We're actually at the Alzora City, uh, specifically in the golf club. And I'm actually getting up close and personal, sitting in the shade and the grass here. It feels a bit like a picnic. It is beautiful. Lots of golfers coming backwards and forwards, looking at us in a very confused way as to why there are seven or eight radio stations broadcasting live from the golf course. Uh, all of our sister stations are here and it is our warm up to UAE National Day next week. We're going to turn our attention now to one of the top local stories, though, making headlines today because Emirates has become the first airline to operate an Airbus A380 powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Our ARN reporter, Sana Kathari, was there at the launch yesterday and joins us now live from our studio. Sana, thank you so much for coming on to the no agenda. Tell me, at all. what did you actually see yesterday? So it was really interesting. Actually, after the security checks um, at the airport itself, they put us in bright yellow reflector vests and then we were taken straight onto the tarmac, actually. And then the Enoch fueling stations came in and they actually fueled the plane. So we were able to speak to some of the collaborators on this project. And we also got to see their pre-flight checks and then the plane actually took off. So what exactly happened? What was new? Um, Emirates is actually the first commercial airline to operate an A380 demo flight using a drop-in 100% sustainable aviation fuel or SAF in one engine. It sounds a little bit complicated, but basically, let's take apart what just happened. Uh, three of the four engines on yesterday's demo flight were powered by conventional jet fuel, but one of the four was powered using 100% NEAT SAF, which is what has never been done before on a commercial A380. 
So until now, uh, SAF has been approved for use in all aircraft, but only when it's blended with 50% conventional jet fuel, which has obviously very high carbon emissions. That's what we use currently. But when it's in its neat form, 100% SAF, it reduces those carbon emissions by up to 80 to 85%, which is what they said. And what exactly is this fuel made of? Uh, We spoke to Edgar Steinwinkel of Virant, one of the SAF manufacturers, who explains exactly how they actually produce the fuel. So we actually make the fuel from an industrial sugar, like a corn sugar, and we process that through a system that's very similar to what you would see in a refinery. And so therefore the product is also very similar to what you would see coming out of a refinery, and that's why we can use it here in our drop-in 100% sustainable aviation fuel. So this fuel is uh, is 100% compatible with every engine and system out there, and you can use this fuel uh, all across the world right now. Uh, and so it needs, just needs to be scaled up to, uh, to get it available in larger quantities. So basically that compatibility is what drop-in refers to. A drop-in fuel can basically take the place of any current fuel without any changes in those fuel systems. So like the infrastructure, the aircraft, uh, the fuel up vehicles, etc. But the big second question was, is SAF financially viable? So how will the adoption affect the cost of flights and the cost of all of that supply and demand behind the scenes? So I spoke to uh, Emirates COO Adil Al-Rehda, who explained the supply and demand of it all a little bit more. Today, the fuel cost is quite high, will not be sustainable for many airlines, including us. But we hope and believe once the volume increase and its quantity becomes available, the current purchase price of the alternative fuel will come down. We are already using or uplifting some fuel in, in different destinations. But I guess a matter of how fast some of the fuel manufacturer can set themselves and scope their capacity to the required volume. So he also added that Emirates is aiming for a commercial capacity increase of like 20 to 25 percent of SAF flights in the next five to seven years or so. So demo flights uh, like the ones that were conducted yesterday will sort of pave the way for future standardization and hopefully a wider adoption of flights for use that use 100 percent SAF. And the confidence that, you know, this works that was displayed yesterday also pushes governments to adopt broader strategies to support the production and the scale up of SAF as well. And hopefully more players will get into the SAF game. It'll become easier to manufacture, widely available, cheaper, because cheaper is not necessarily the case today either. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, SAF fuel at the moment, uh, considerably more expensive than normal fuel, but such an important initiative. Uh, Sana Kathari there, ARN News reporter. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks for joining Thank us here you. on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m.